just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1951, and don't you just love those afternoons when a podcast isn't a podcast, but a little piece of eternity dropped into your hands? The movie? A Streetcar Named Desire. I'm Amy Nicholson, and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we watch one film from the AFI's top 100 best films of all time list to see if they are really as good as people say, do they hold up, and how have they influenced the films we watch now. Today we'll be talking about a Streetcar Named Desire. But before we get into that, just want to remind people that we are still raising money for charity. If you go to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled, you can get your very own unspooled shirt uh, that is kind of uh, influenced by Rear Window. It's raising money for an amazing charity. 100% of all the proceeds is going directly to that charity. So we're excited about that. So get over there if you can. If you have a few extra dollars on you, give something, get something. It works out perfectly. And also, this Monday, if you were listening to this before, Monday the 1st of June, we're doing our another our next uh, uh, spool party. We're doing a spool party on our YouTube channel, and it is going to be for none other than the great classic, Coming to America. I am so excited that we are doing a Coming to America episode. You know my love of Eddie Murphy. So to get to have one of his classics on the show is uh, is really Something I'm looking forward to. You know, as a matter of fact, I wanted to ask you a quick question right now. If you could pick one Eddie Murphy movie, what would it be to go on the AFI list? Just one. You could only pick one. Oh, my gosh. I feel oh, like my you gosh. Get, I feel like there's like three or four in contention, right? It has to be Coming to America, Nutty Professor, and Beverly Hills Cop. Like those feel like the ones that you would, that would be in the conversation. Maybe think- there's another one. I think I would do Coming to America, honestly. I, for, I, I was kind of sidetracked going down the Beverly Hills Cop moment. Yeah. But I thought, you know what? There are, that is a great, that is a great, like, 
at 80s action movie, but there are other great 80s action movies. Uh, Coming to America is so singular. That's what I kind of think. I think it kind of combines the best of everything. But we'll see. We'll get into this debate next week. Uh, Is Coming to America the best Eddie Murphy movie? Oh, boy. Who knows? Um, (laughs) And Amy, you have a, a podcast coming out, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The new episode of my very sporadic miniseries, Zoom, is um, out. And it's all in the history of the divas. It, it, it has been such a fun and interesting episode to put together. It really goes, uh, I've got clips in there that harken all the way back to Caligula. Oh, wow. <laughs> and also Glitter. It might be the only podcast on the planet that has clips from Caligula and Glitter. So I'm very happy. Um, it's I all love this. about divas and the episode is called Zoom. And yeah, Zoom is just my podcast where I do deep dives into different topics. And so the diva one was much richer than I ever thought it could be. I am so excited to hear it. And if you want to check me out right now, uh, my new YouTube show, Marvel Presents the World's Greatest Book Club with Paul Shear. Uh, brand new episodes drop every single week. This week, we have Yasser Lester on the show. Last week, we had Phil Lord, who is the director of 21 Jump Street and uh, the producer of uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And we're just talking about cool Marvel books. If you've never read a Marvel comic book, this is a great entry point. If you're a big comic books fan, this might be a way to Find an artist or a writer that you might not have known. And it's all to help raise awareness for small comic book shops. And this week, we actually have a really cool thing. We started reaching out to these comic book shops, and they're sending in their own videos. And uh, this week, we went to Smyrna, Georgia, to talk to somebody down there, and it's awesome. And that's that. So before we get into Streetcar, let's go back to last week's episode, where we talked about Bridge on the River Kwai, another uh, very hotly contested film on this list. A lot of talk on this movie, Amy. Yeah, this is another one that um, harkened back to, I think, our most long-standing disagreement on this show, which is, come on, is this movie an American movie or is this a British movie? Which the, the argument that comes up all the time and again comes up here. Yeah, I feel like this is determined by some vague technicality that... If you ask somebody from the AFI, they could probably explain it to you after they researched it and asked like three managers above them. (laughs) Exactly. I really do think it is just like who fights harder or am I going to claim it and what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I'm going (laughs) to claim this movie. What are you going to do? Come and blow up my list about it? Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, look, and look, Joe Birch says, the one thing I want to mention here in the UK, it's a very well-known film. It's on TV regularly. The lyrics to the whistled tune are as well-known. The jingle is commonly played by ice cream vans. And when I was at school, it was a common playground song, and everyone knew the Hitler's Ball lyrics. I love that. I mean, that's the point that came up, too, on Twitter. People were like, yeah, think about it. Everybody really knew how much that what those lyrics were really saying in this movie. And it was such a thrill for the audience to feel like you're getting away with something. And I really loved hearing everybody's memories of hearing the song. You know, Gal Gal Barrel, Britt Keegan said, you know, my dad said his high school gym teacher in the 1960s had the boys do the whistle from choir while marching to and fro workout. To, to and from workouts, I always assume that that's also why it's in the breakfast club, that it's like a gym teacher thing. Like maybe, maybe there's a theory that John Hughes's gym teacher used to whistle it for him. He'd be from that generation. Oh, that's where it comes from. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. I was like, why do I know that song so well? And it's the breakfast club. That's how it got ingrained into my psyche. And I, I have a different theory about how it's in your yeah. psyche though. Yeah. What right. about Carl, Craig Falkenham pointed out that it's also in Star Trek seven. Oh, well, I know that. Uh, (laughs) I always know that. Oh, but, you know, that's really interesting, too. I guess it's sort of the shorthand. And, you know, to a certain extent, this movie feels a lot to me like Shawshank. 
a very competent film that's played a lot that all of a sudden is elevated by the familiarity to it. You know, oh, I know that song. Oh, yes, the blowing up of the bridge. There are certain elements to this film that I think just elevate it just because it's in public consciousness. Um, Because obviously we like this movie, just didn't think it was one of the best of all time. No, I mean, Alan Seppenwall, the mighty, brilliant, brilliant critic that we adore so much. Mm-hmm. He was saying, you know, I'm beginning to think that I would rather have The Great Escape on this list. Or if we're going to stick with William Holden as a POW, Salig 17. Well, yeah, I was talking about The Great Escape the other day when we were doing this podcast because there's something about that movie that feels maybe, A, a little bit more American, uh, but also it, it kind of captures a, um, I don't know, a different kind of a story. I, I still... I'm fighting for Cool Hand Luke on this list. I feel like I don't (laughs) understand why we don't have Cool Hand Luke on this list. Do we have any Paul Newman on this list? I feel like I haven't really seen Paul Newman in a long time. We're getting close. We're getting close. We have a Paul Newman coming up. You know, Anna Smith, uh, Anna Smith 451, she did something kind of fun related to what we're talking about. We've been doing so many Vietnam movies from this list. And so she went back with uh, Lady Leabug and they rewatched Tropic Thunder since it is the ultimate war movie satire film. And she said, you know, not only in this watch does she notice the homage to the best years of our life, but Tom Cruise makes a reference to Dick Cheese. Dick Cheese, the French of Unspooled. We forgot about Dick Cheese. Oh, wow. I mean, it hasn't come up again, but um, so sad. We have, like you said, 10 more movies left, so maybe. Maybe that Paul Newman will say Dick Cheese and make everything right. Uh, And finally, um, this is from Thomas Pascoe. He goes, I was inspired by Evan Funke's uh, appearance on the Goodfellas episode to buy some San Marzano tomatoes and try my hand at a homemade spaghetti sauce. Turned out great. After years of failing at bad, overcomplicated recipes, this simple one was so delicious, Olive oil, garlic, oregano, and tomatoes. Ah, makes me want to make one right now, too. Ah, have you made a tomato sauce in quarantine, Amy? I have, I have, I have. I had a night where um, I just had a gigantic bowl of meatballs and a tomato sauce and a glass of red wine, and it was absolutely lovely. I think I'm going to do it again because my boyfriend and I have decided to give ourselves educational missions during quarantine. And one of them is Ooh. we're going to try to get into opera. So uh, oh, I'm going to make a big ass ball of meatballs and we're going to watch Aida. Oh, interesting. I love that. All right. Uh, well, you know, speaking of opera and a loud booming voice, uh, last week we asked you to call in with your best Stanley Kowalski impression, but instead of just yelling Stella, because that's been done a million times, and you'll hear later on in this episode how it's even done in a professional setting, um, we wanted to see what you could be yelling to the heavens, something that you want, something that you need, something that maybe you haven't gotten during this quarantine. So here are your best Stanley Kowalski in quarantine, screaming out for something that you need. Baseball! Haircut! Disneyland to see Galaxy's Edge for the first time! Cuddles! I live alone! I'm single! I want cuddles! Geostorm! Overpriced movie theater popcorn with too much butter and not enough salt! Star Trek Draft! Um, I would. Yeah. I am so happy that we at least got one Geostorm in there, which is a how did this get made uh, reference. But uh, these are pretty solid ones. 
Yeah, the the um, one about movie theater popcorn had me laughing because I have a friend who misses the movie theater so much. He bought this, you know, those giant they're like milk cartons full of oh, that yeah. artificial poppers, like popcorn oh, seasoning. Yeah. He bought one of those. It's, I mean, it's enough for like an entire week at the multiplex. I think of making popcorn for you know audiences, and now he owns this giant thing of of popcorn butter, and he's like, "How can I give this away to people?" However, I did miss it, and I'm so happy to own some. Oh, well, like, I mean, what does it come in? Like a big giant chunk? It's It, it, it really comes in like a milk carton. Like you bought a little uh, liter of milk, but it's all yeah. just filled with neon orange butter. Neon orange, like Oof. butter powder. So, you, oh, just powder. So you just drop it on. Ooh, nice. All right. How is it? Does it taste good? It's pretty great. It's pretty great. Um, all right. Well, Amy, uh, let's get into today's episode. It is, of course, A Streetcar Named Desire. And you know what? Ding, ding, unspool it. Lucy, you got some explaining to do. The year is 1951 and I Love Lucy premieres on CBS. The 22nd Amendment is ratified, which limits the U.S. presidential term to only eight years. The term rock and roll is coined by a DJ in Cleveland. The oral contraceptive pill is invented. Direct dial coast-to-coast telephone service begins in the U.S., Popular films are An American in Paris, The Day the Earth Stood Still, African Queen, and today's film, A Streetcar Named Desire. It ranks number 47 on the 2007 AFI Top 100 list, down a little bit since its 1997 ranking of number 45. So very close, very close there. Let's listen to a clip. You must be Stanley. I'm Blanche. Oh, you're still sister. Yes. Oh, hi. Yeah, where's the little woman? In the bathroom. Oh. Well, where are you from, Blanche? Uh, I live in Oriole. Oriole. Oriole, huh? Oh, yeah, that's right, Oriole. That's not my territory. Man, look, it goes fast in the hot weather. You want a shot? Uh, no, I, I rarely touch it. Well, there's some people that rarely touch it, but it touches them often. Oh. Amy, who's in it? And what's it about? A Streetcar Named Desire. Oh, man. This is the story of a fading beauty named Blanche Dubois, played by Vivian Lee, our girl from Gone with the Wind. Once again, she is Southern. She is feminine. She is used to having men wrapped around her hands, but it is not working. She has been chased out of her hometown, and she is now hiding out in New Orleans with her sister Stella, played by Kim Hunter, but really more crucially, her sister's husband, Marlon Brando, as Stanley Kowalski. And... uh, all hell absolutely breaks loose. The story is, of course, written by Tennessee Williams. It was first performed on Broadway and directed by Ilya Kazan, who returned to direct this version with pretty much the entire cast, except for Vivian Lee. In the original cast, it was Jessica Tandy, swapped her in for a bigger movie star, felt like it kind of had to. And then we got A Streetcar Named Desire, which won her the Oscar. Well, Amy, let's talk about this movie because I'm going to be honest and say I didn't remember a goddamn thing about this. I thought I did. I thought I knew what Streetcar was about. And I am still basking in the glow of being blown <laughs> away by this movie. I I never realized how amazing this movie is. I want to talk to everyone about it. It It is really, I mean, the performances are amazing, but the story is... We talk about melodrama a lot on this show, and this is the perfect example, in my opinion, 
of how to do melodrama. It, it is it is dramatic. It's emotional. It's intense. It's it really. I want to live in this movie. Uh, do you really want to live in this movie? It looks. Kind oh of- <laughs> yeah. No, I just. Do you want to be I, drinking I, that southern cheer? <laughs> I just feel like I couldn't get enough of these characters. I, I mean, am I like attracted to Marlon Brando? Absolutely. I mean, this is like I couldn't take my eyes off of him. Uh, this entire movie, I'm just riveted to, and it's interesting because it's incredibly forward in what the ideas are presenting, and they have to really skirt it in this film, but yet it works still, even though they had to cut some very big corners. Uh, I'm totally sucked in. I just want to hear what you think about it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, if you watch this movie um, now in the post-1993-ish world, which is when they found the stuff that was cut out of it to get this movie past the censors in 51, you are seeing exactly the movie pretty much as Elia Kazan wanted. You know, there is a very clear rape. There is... um, very clear insinuations of all of the sexual heat of Blanche Dubois. Um, and you're getting to see the movie pretty much intact, except for a couple tiny subplots uh, cut out. So today's Streetcar Named Desire is the Streetcar Named Desire-ish that Tennessee Williams wanted. And, you know, what I love about this introduction, I mean, let alone the fact that all of the streetcar names, you know, sound like they're like, hello, we are a theme. Pay attention to what we're trying to say. There really was a streetcar named Desire, by the way, but it was named after a guy's daughter who was like Desiree, but, you know etc. It's just that image. You know, you you see these people spill off a train and there's this bride, a young, young, young bride and all of her friends. And she's so excited. And it looks like she's heading on her honeymoon. And then she goes into this cloud of smoke. And from that smoke emerges Vivian Lee as Blanche Dubois. And you just get this sense, almost like a time traveler. You know, here is a woman who was this young, beautiful bride. And then, boom, this is what happens to that person. This is the future. Can I help you, ma'am? Well, they, they told me to take a streetcar named Desire and then transfer to one called Cemetery and ride six blocks and get off at Collision Fields. There's your car now. I mean, my God. Vivian Lee looks like a ghost, right? Like, when she first gets off that streetcar, I mean, the way that she looks, it's like she's a ghost, like she's just a hollowed-out person. And... There's something really interesting they did with the makeup. She's 36 at the time that they do this uh, movie. They age her. And I think what you're able to do there, instead of taking an older actress, you can kind of see the younger version of her because she still is young. They do something really interesting. So you can kind of see her in the past and in the present. I I don't know. It's the way her face is framed, the way she's lit. It She just appears to me damage. The minute you see her, you get a lot of information. I think that's very hard to do a lot of times in a play without making it, uh, you know, insane. You know, like she has a great gardens look to her in a way. No, you're so right. Like, I mean, when we look at even just that first wardrobe she's wearing, everything is diaphanous. You know, her, her, Mm. her sleeves are see-through. Everything's kind of ghostly and it floats and she's wearing, you know, flowers on her hat. She's wearing a veil. She's wearing flowers on her dress. She's so overly feminine. And when you look at her that first glance, you're like, whoa. And then it follows her. She starts leaving, you know, this cloud of smoke area where she lives to the neighborhood. And you just see all these other women who are in plain cotton drinking beer. And suddenly this overly feminine look starts to look really out of time. You know, she looks like this, this person who just does not belong here with every inch of her. 
Well, I mean, I'd even go further and say, like, she's white in a city of black, right? Like, I think the the first image of her coming out of the smoke, it the the you know obviously it's a black and white film, but you she is brighter than anyone else around, and I think it just it goes to show you she is not going to fit in here. No, um, and she's the yeah. kind of white who thinks being Polish is not being white. I mean, yes. she is a kind of racist ultra white lady. Yeah, and I mean, and and I was even saying color wise white, but you're right. There is this this a highfalutin air about her. And and obviously she's coming from more of the old South. I wonder if it's playing a little bit on her gone with the wind persona to a certain degree, Uh, but she's coming into a dirty new Orleans, also the South, uh, but a different kind of South, the dirty South, you know? uh, Oh, wow. Yeah. The the little John. Yeah. (laughs) The (laughs) crunk, the crunk South. Uh, no, exactly. And, you know, what you were just describing, that idea of like you look at her face and you see two people at once, you know, the old and the young and the beauty and the, the aged. And I mean, that's just this movie star quality that I think we have when we know Vivian Lee, when she's been the biggest, most famous, most beautiful Southern belle at all times. It's almost like a movie star as she was carries her past with her all the time. And you can't let it go when you see her in this. I mean, the if this had been like an unknown actress, I don't know if you'd get that weight. I was thinking about this in Gone with the Wind and I was thinking about it a lot again this time. She has that strange smile. You know, when she smiles, she looks like she's seven years old. She has this smile where like her cheeks kind of turn in and she suddenly goes from looking like a grown woman to a baby. Do you know what I mean? Do you know this smile? I do. I do. I mean, it has like a little bit of a broken smile. I, I think back to like Anthony Perkins in Psycho, like this kind of, there's something not fully connected behind the eyes, but I also think, and this is kind of a bigger thought, but she looks like prey, right? She's, she is a bunny going into, uh, you know, a forest full of wild animals. And I feel like so many people try to take advantage of her here, even though she is in her own little world, but she, like, I feel like she embodies somebody that I think people think they can go after a little bit. And I I feel like that definitely comes in play at the later half of the film, but I love that. I mean, like you, you want to take her in, but you also feel like you're smarter than her, but then you realize that she's got things going on too. There's so many aspects to this character that you're just getting from clothing, smiles, eyes. It's, it's a lot, about how she's perceived. And I think that Ilya Kazan does a great job of not having to weigh you down with a lot of details at first. Just lets you simmer in it. You start to make your own impressions of all these people. And I think that that's a beautiful way into this film. Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost like I feel like you can watch this movie and imagine you're just watching what happened to Scarlett O'Hara mm. 11 years later. You know, in the gap between when that movie came out and this, like what happens when Rhett doesn't come back? Like what happens when a, a beauty loses the great love of her life? Like where does a beauty like that go? And the kind of femininity you're describing, I mean, yeah, it's prey, but she also makes herself prey. You know how there's like those birds yes. that pretend their wing is broken and they're like flopping around so that like a fox doesn't go eat their eggs? I mean, that's how she's managed to live the whole life, except she's doing it to save herself. You know, it's just like, oh, look at absolutely. me, i oh my gosh. She's definitely playing that game. I, I mean, I, but I think that idea, like she really has to convey that because that's how 
That's what she's decided her personality is. And then when you get her in that uh, bowling alley with her sister, you start to see, oh, she's a little manipulative. She starts guilting her sister. She starts, you know, having bigger plans. This idea of like the Southern Belle, you see all the machinations begin to happen there. And again, the character's twisted. You do, you're like, okay, now I'm learning a little bit more about her. And then they bring her to the house. And I think the first moment of like real conflict is when her and Stanley are kind of circling each other. They both are kind of people who are masters of their domain or, or masters of how they control people, you know, to a certain degree. And I feel like they, they can see each other for who they are, if that makes sense. No, exactly. And and I love I love that scene with her sister at the bowling alley, you know, because that's when you get this this glimpse of who she really is, you know, the way she kind of disses her sister, like here. You haven't said a word about my appearance. Oh, you look just fine. God love you for a liar. Daylight never exposed, so total a ruin. But you, you put on some weight, yes. You're just as plump as a little partridge. It's so becoming to you, too. Oh, no, Blanche. Yes, it is, it is, or I wouldn't say it. You uh, just have to watch around the hips a little. I-, I want you to look at my figure, you know? I haven't put on one ounce in ten years, Stella. I weigh now what I weighed the summer you left Belle Reeve. The summer Dad died, and you left it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love that moment because it has so many layers to it. You know, she's reminding her little sister that she's not the beauty of the family. Her little sister is accepting it and being like, you still look really lovely, you know, and knowing what's happening, noting it. She, she, Her sister's not dumb, but her sister's like, this is what it is. And then Vivian bragging about how much her beauty is meant to her and how she's maintained this weight. You get so much character in that tiny interaction. And look, I think you're getting all this wealth because of how well this is written. I mean, obviously it's Tennessee Williams and these, most of these performers, I mean, including uh, Vivian Lee have played these parts before, right? They've all, uh, you know, been immersed in this place. I feel like they carry a weight with them of someone who's done this on Broadway or on the West end for hundreds of performances. And so there is something so lived in about these characters, so natural about them. There is, I mean, Kind of what one of the stories is, is, you know, Vivian Lee had done this character in London and her husband, Lawrence Olivier, directed it. You know, they had had this like great, magical, tempestuous love affair that was winding down when she starts to make a streetcar named Desire. And she's really starting to fall apart emotionally. But he had directed her in it as playing, you know, this fragile Southern Belle in London for like nine months. You know, nine months she'd spent being his version of Blanche Dubois. And she felt like she knew that character better than anybody, better than Ilya Kazan. And Ilya Kazan was like, you're playing this character kind of like a British person would see her. He felt like Laurence Olivier didn't understand the southernness of this character and made her kind Mm. of a cliche. So they had all these struggles. Like they both thought they knew Blanche. They were fighting for the soul of Blanche. And it seems to me that Vivian Lee was very outward in her, not anger, but her distrust of Ilya Kazan. She's like, no, I don't. He didn't inform my character at all. Uh, the interesting thing, and maybe this is more uh, gossipy than not, but obviously in this uh, film, you know, Marlon Brando and Vivian Lee have this sexual tension between them that obviously culminates uh, later in the film. But uh, in real life, apparently, Marlon Brando had an affair with Vivian Lee's husband, uh, Lawrence Olivier. Yeah, uh, that is... 
that is the the rumor of the time that they and it kind of makes perfect sense to me. I mean, especially the, everything I know about Brando. But I, I'm not saying it's 100 percent the truth. But I did read that, so I thought that was interesting. I didn't know that. I read that. I read an interview with Brando where he was saying, you know, Vivian Lee was really beautiful, and th- I mean, his phrasing is, "I might have given her a tumble if it oh. weren't if it if it hadn't been for Lawrence Olivier." Or he called him Larry Olivier, so maybe that does go to your thing. And he's like, "Larry got that's it." Maybe I'm reading that quote wrong. I read that quote as kind of like paternalistic, like, "Oh, I might have given her a tumble, but I respected her husband too much." But maybe it's like, "I might have given her a tumble, but I liked her husband better." <laughs> it depends on when that interview was, right? Because I don't think that Brando would be talking about his affair with uh, Larry uh, in the 50s. You know, I wonder when this even kind of came out. But this is like kind of the the scuttlebutt around Hollywood at the time. So you know, I'd buy it. Maybe Marlon would have, honestly. I mean, Marlon is a guy who used to bring his pet raccoon to parties at Hollywood. And he would walk up to other celebrities and say, do you have anything my raccoon can fuck? So... <laughs> well, by the way, let, but he let's was trying to be the New York bad boy of Hollywood. He was like, I don't fit here. I'm going to be a real asshole. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time because messes happen because. Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. Well, oh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. Well, I mean, let's talk about Brando and, and the way that he comes in, because, you know, this movie really is a war of, you know, this white image coming into this dark space. And I feel like Brando is kind of gray, if that makes sense. You know, like he I don't think that he is. It's hard. I want to, like, be careful with my word choice. I think he falls in this middle ground where he may be wearing more of what he does on his sleeve. He is this person, but you know he's this person to a certain extent. Whereas Vivian Lee's character, Blanche Dubois, is hiding who she is. So there's this like interesting push and pull between them. But when he first comes in, I said it earlier, I just was I, like, you can't take your eyes off him. I was blown away just by all the little things, the business that he's doing around the apartment. Uh just I'm just like just totally caught up in him and I can see why Blanche's sister is in love with him and she you know she says it she's like you know I left that all behind and I'm happy like sexually I'm happy I'm here with this man who's like providing for me she's not slumming it she's just kind of picking a different way to be happy um you know I don't know yeah I mean we get to see Marlon from Far away, right at the pool hall, you mm-hmm. know, and our first thing that we know about him is he's a guy who's starting fights and that his wife yeah. is like, oh, what a rhubarb. You know, like, OK, I didn't know rhubarb was a was a slang for like, what a cool, tough guy. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. What a rhubarb. I don't think I've had rhubarb. That's not. True. Oh, it's great. Strawberry rhubarb. Can't get I on it. Have it. Oh, I have a strawberry rhubarb jam. Anyways, that's neither here nor there. I have a great uh, Marlon Brando flavored jam. But then 
the real, I mean, I don't really consider that the first real shot of him, even though it's establishing that he is this you know, mm-hmm. physical center of attention, masculine presence. It's when they're in their house and you get that first close-up of him, really a close-up of him. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? I mean, here, this is Marlon Brando. Like, he had been playing this role on Broadway for a couple of years. He'd had a bit part in one Hollywood movie, you know, mm-hmm. right before this that wasn't that popular. So, honestly, most of the people sitting down who didn't live in New York and didn't get to see him on Broadway, that close-up is your first shot ever in your life of Marlon Brando. And then you're going to watch the whole rest of this movie? Are you serious? How are you a moviegoer in the world in the year 1951 and you are not just, like, immediately throwing yourself off a bridge that this man exists on the planet? You know, he's so charismatic and raw. He'd gotten all buff. Like, he wasn't really a muscle guy before this movie, but he made himself get really buff. And he would, like, work out and lift weights between takes so he'd get extra sweaty so they wouldn't have to use fake sweat on him. Imagine. Like, I don't I don't know if we've been alive for, like, a star entrance like that where we're like, who is this person? And then he's going to go on to get four Oscar nominations in a row? I mean, he really does carry so much with him. And it's interesting because he's, we talked about this in On the Waterfront. He's a different type of leading man. And there's something about him that there is a sensitivity, but you can also buy an anger. Like he really is more facile than I think people even know him to be, because I think we think of Brando kind of later age Brando, but he was able to do so much. But I think every one of his characters carries with him this sweetness. And I think that's the reason why, you know, we are, you know, no, you like him to a certain degree, you know, it's, it's uh, Stella. You see why, they have something, why she may go back to him. Like, you know, it's, I think that you could cast this the wrong way and make it too tough. You got to find that weird balance. And I mean, that's, that's a smaller acting note, but I also wanted to point out that the reason that he looks so good too, is because he's in these fitted shirts, which was not of the time they had to make and tailor these shirts. So he was rippling out of these shirts. I mean, he really created a fashion a fashion by doing this. This is not what anyone would be wearing in, in the same way that you, you know, would put a woman in a, in a corset or a bra that would be amplifying things. That's what they're doing to, to Marlon Brando. They really are like letting you see his body. Like they really want you to feel that energy when he comes in. And then they keep getting him wet. I mean, is, is he the very first winner of a Bourbon Street wet t-shirt contest? <laughs> And they throw him Maybe. in the shower. They can't stop getting him wet. It's crazy. Like you can, I feel like you can smell him. Do you feel like you can smell him? Oh yeah. I mean, this movie is a sweaty movie and it, and, and this whole, this apartment, you, you feel like you can, everything feels so lived in. I, you know, you talked about the opening shot of Brando, this close up, and this is what this film does really wonderfully too, is using the idea of what the camera can communicate that you could never do on stage. It's the close-up. It's the moment later in the play when Carl Malden wants to look at Blanche's face. Like you, you are getting to put people in a in a, a place to really see them or be brought into them. And they even did uh, tricks with the set. Like the set gets smaller and smaller as the movie goes on. It's the same set, but they kind of are pushing in the walls, um, which is great because you it's it's building it's building it's building and you could never do that on stage and so i think we talked about this a lot like you just take something that was successful on stage and you bring it over to film but you don't really change anything and i feel like here kazan does an amazing job of taking all the benefits of the play but then amplifying them 
through film. Right? I mean, for Kazan to have known who Marlon Brando was and what he could do and how much he owned this part, and then getting to put it on screen, getting to hold a camera and be like, okay, now y'all can really see what I could see, what people in the seats could never see at home on, on Broadway. Mm. That That is like such power. You could imagine him kind of like chomping at the bit how excited he must have been to do it. But he wasn't. Like they had to twist his arm to direct this. Well, yes. Like, right. I mean, he had reservations about directing the movie because he was worried that he couldn't make it alive for him. You know, that he had mm-hmm. put it on stage in Broadway like four years before. So how was he going to make it feel interesting again? And I think that's why, honestly, I think that's a lot of why he recast Tandy, you know, Jessica Tandy as the lead, because I think for him to make it new again, he had to take out the biggest piece and put it back in, you know, as a new person. So it felt fresh. So it was like a different challenge. I I mean, I honestly think that as much as Jessica Tandy not being like the biggest movie star in the world and having that Vivian Linus, I think those are really the two reasons why she wasn't there because by all means, she was good. I, I found a clip of her, actually, um, on the radio, performing it against Marlon Brando right when they were oh, shooting yes. it on Broadway. Hiya, Blanche. Here I am, all freshly bathed and scented and feeling like a brand new human being. Well, that's good. Where's Stella? She's outside getting some air. How do I look? You look okay. Many thanks. Well, looks like my trunk has exploded. Yeah, me and Stella was helping you unpack. Well, you certainly did a fast and thorough job of it. Well, it certainly looks like you raided some stylish shops in Paris. Yes, clothes are my passion. Yeah, now, what does it cost for a string of furs like that? Why, those were a tribute from an admirer of mine. Well, he must have a lot of admiration. In my youth, I excited some admiration. But look at me now. Would you think it possible that I was ever considered to be attractive? Your looks are okay. I was fishing for compliments, Stanley. But- you you can hear a difference, you know, in the way that she's doing mm-hmm. it. She's, I think, more confident in the way she projects it. Like, she kind of hides, I think, better that, you know, that Blanche Dubois is so broken. You know, she's still pretty good at making yes. the Southern Bell work. And she's, I, I think you almost get a little bit more of an arc in her version, you know, where you, like, see that her collapse makes it even more right. powerful. Where I, Vivian I, Lee just channels this fragility from the beginning. Yeah, it's a different way of playing the part. And, you know... Even Vivian Lee wasn't the first choice after Tandy, though. It was going to be, uh, what you call it, Olivia de Havilland. She refused doing it. Um, so I wonder what that would be, because, again, another star of Gone with the Wind. Um, and, you know, I think he was trying, maybe he was trying to get this, I mean, she's British as well. Like, I wonder if he was trying to really reach outside of the States to kind of get somebody that, would have a different take on it. So you could kind of work with them on that. I don't know. I don't know her work as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it feels like the difference between leaning into the baggage of Gone with the Wind and leaning a half step away, right? You mm. know, like if you want this to be, here is my great grand dramatic version of Streetcar Named Desire that nobody in the movie audience has seen. And it's going to be like my Broadway version, only bigger you know, which is, it seems like a lot of what he wanted to do, given that he didn't cast movie star parts in anybody else. You know, nobody else was a movie star. He brought his entire cast of people from the Broadway stage here to do it, I think, straightforward and legitimately and sincerely. That does change when you cast the most famous Southern Belle in history as your Blanche Dubois. You know, it's like the movie star versus, versus like the purity but, struggle. But in such a beautiful decision, you're casting an outsider to fit in with people who are all together. And that's exactly what Blanche is. Blanche is the outsider coming into a tight knit circle. So 
it's like all the directors we talk about where they try to recreate something, you know, whether it is going to war or, you know, uh, being mad at the lead actor or actress and, and getting in their heads. Like he basically did that by bringing in someone who's not even uh, American saying, come in to our tight knit group. We know this. We've all worked together and it creates a friction. And I think even if it's the friction of you're new, it's a friction. And, uh, and that to me is really a smart choice. Like not the familiarity. It's, it, it really, it's only one piece that's changed. And you have to look at that one piece. If it was Stanley. I'd be like, that's an, that doesn't make as much sense, but because it is Blanche, it, it feels like it was a conscious decision. No, it's true. I, that's such a good point. And I was thinking it is weird that, you know, when a, when a major person gets replaced, like when Tandy is out, there's a, a quiet, like, blame Vivian Lee for it when it's an Elia mm-hmm. Kazan decision. Like, that's so mm. weird. But- well, yeah, it's a studio saying, like, she's not a big star. And, and we've seen that so many times, like, lead roles recast by people who aren't exactly right. I mean, it, uh, but rarely does it work out perfectly. I think here it may have worked out in their favor. No, I agree. And I mean, also Vivian Lee is an outcast in this other major way. You know, all of these other actors, not only have they been doing the Broadway version together, they're all coming out of this like method training. You know, they all believe in doing the same kind of acting. You know, Marlon Brando, when he gets to the set for Streetcar Named Desire, he does what he did on the Broadway thing. He's like, he looks around, he touches everything on the Hollywood set. He sits in every chair. He touches all the walls. He turns on all the lights. He touches all the drapes. He makes it his own set. And then he starts bringing his own stuff to the set. You know, he brings like his own props. He brings Stanley things. He brings condoms, which I thought was really strange because like Stanley's wife is pregnant. So she's not having a baby. So what does he need condoms for? Um, well, yeah, maybe it's sort of uh, we don't know how faithful Stanley is. It's not like he's an upstanding citizen. You think that he was just a hundred percent in for uh, Stella? Uh, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, well, yes, and no. I mean, no, I mean, yeah, yeah, no, he literally, he literally does things that are not that, um, but he does seem to love her so much. But he also seems to me like a guy who could justify just about anything, right? And look, let's call a spade a spade. He's an, he's an abusive husband. We see a, mo- we see a moment of it with his wife. We see a moment of it with Blanche. These are not uncharacteristic things. Like he is an abuser, right? And at this time, I'm sure it's looked at it through a different lens, but this is this this man who is controlling the people around him. And, you know, it culminates ultimately in the ultimate act of control. But uh, he, uh, you know, I, I think he's, I think what makes him so interesting, what the portrayal makes it so interesting, going back to what I said, is like there's a sweetness there. Like you feel like, oh, but he does love her. Even though he hit her, he does love her though. And that's like that, and that is that kind of cycle of, you know, living with an abuser, but, but he, he was just upset. He, you know, I was, but it was my fault, you know? And, the, and I think that that's actually brilliant writing. No, it's true. I mean, he's an abuser living in a world where most of the guys are abusive. You know, the upstairs mm-hmm. neighbor, Steven Eunice, he also hits her. And when he hits Eunice, it's kind of considered like comedy to everybody, even to Stella, who's getting hit by her own husband. She's like, ah, she's at the bar. They're all kind of laughing about it. Don't call the cop. She's, she's over there. But still like, you know, in that moment when he had, when we do see him hit Stella for the first time, and then he realizes he wakes up from this kind of fugue, knocked out, being thrown in the shower thing, that pain in Marlon Brando's voice. You know, the, the Stella part of the yell is the famous part, but I want to take a second and listen to the buildup to the Stella yell. Look, you can sleep over here, Stella, and Blanche can have Steve's place. He ain't coming home tonight if he knows what's good for him, yeah? 
she ain't coming down and she ain't going to talk to you neither, so you might just as well not call her. that said i mean vivian lee is not necessarily the kind of person who's going to be bringing blanche's condoms to the set you know this isn't her mm-hmm. acting style but it works so well this clash between styles you know it's so interesting these films we've been talking about from the 50s when you watch the new acting go up against the old acting sometimes it makes the movie feel out of balance but here it's exactly what this is you know Stanley Kowalski is a guy who is raw and everything is coming from his heart and his spine or I guess kind of his dick, his whole thing, you know, whereas Vivian Lee's Blanche, all of her actions are premeditated in a way, you know, she's putting on an act. It is like a self-conscious performance in that old style, you know, of coming from being a London trained actor and you learn to act and you don't need crutches like the method because you do the work and you show you just make it happen. That's how Blanche is. And I feel like you even hear those two acting styles come up against each other when they have that first conversation that we keep talking about. Uh, teach, aren't you? Yes. What do you teach? English. Well, I never was very good English student. How long are you here for? Well, I don't know yet. You going you to shack up here? I thought I would if it's not inconvenient for you all. Traveling wears me out. Well, take it easy. <laughs> Not those cats. Can we hear that meow again? <laughs> can Can we hear that meow one more time? One more time. All right. Okay. What about four? Can I go for four meows? Oh, go for it. <laughs> what is this cat on a hot tin roof? Anyway, uh, <laughs> I'm kind of fascinated with this idea of how we all live our lives. I think there are some people who use a mask and some people who don't use a mask. And I think in our society, using a mask is something that is uh, acceptable. Not not like a COVID mask. I'm just saying. Okay, but, yeah. Like, I was yeah, like, hold yeah. on. <laughs> so I think there is something really interesting about putting someone who wears a mask up against somebody who is not wearing a mask. And I think he wants to rip her mask off. Like, you know, you're not this person. You're a liar. I see through you. And it's like, and, and that, that kind of, I think we've all had these moments and these people in our lives where you deal with somebody and you're like, oh, that motherfucker, they're doing this thing. And I know they're doing it. And only if everyone could see that they were doing it, I want to just show everybody that they're doing it. Like along the lines, I don't think you live your life like that, but there are those people that can get under your skin, whether it's at work or somebody you've went to school with, or somebody even in your family, the kiss ass, the suck up, and and I feel like that's the relatable thing here with Stanley. I'm not saying he's a good person, but I think his instinct 
to reveal her is a really interesting instinct that we don't often see in, you know, I think we see it a lot in rom-coms. You know, it's like this idea of like, I'm going to reveal, I'm going to tell you who this person really is. You know, the bad guy in a rom-com trying to bust the other, you know, the other suitor or whatever it is. You know, like I feel like that's where it's been, you know, kind of, uh, it lives now. But this is just such a dramatic, like, push-pull of like, no, no. You are, you're, you're worse than me. I know it. And let me show you, you know, he's like, his whole thing is motivated by proving to her that she's a liar. It's true. And I I think he doesn't understand that, you know, honestly, for a lot of, of female history, you had to kind of put on a mask if you wanted Mm -hmm. to, you know, have a house to live in. Yeah, I don't think Stanley really gets that. You know, that if you want to get married, you have to be a big flirt. You have to put on a spell. You have to wear literally the mask of makeup. You know, once somebody, I read a book where a character referred to putting on her daily makeup as painting a face over her face. And I I love that image because it's true. You know, when I put on makeup, I paint eyes over my eyes. I paint lips over my lips. You're painting a different face over your face. That's a lot of the nature of this femininity that Blanche Dubois lives in. That's just been her nature. I mean, Blanche Dubois is probably a person who went to the movies and saw Gone with the Wind and thought, that's great. I want to be like her. You know, I am like her. I'm going to flirt with men because that's how I get food on my table. That's how I get a place to live. You know, that's supposed to be my security blanket. And to do that, you have to do things like turn on lights and look at, you know, dopey uh, Carl Malden's Mitch and be like, oh, we've made enchantment, you know? It, that it right. works on him. It works on people. Well, I mean, she doesn't even let him see her in the daylight. You know, it's just funny, specific. Like, you know, as I'm thinking about it, I'm like, what do you think is the motivating factor? Is is he trying to just root her out because he knows that she's a con artist, or is he trying to reveal her as a fraud because he's afraid he's going to turn Stella on him? And you know, and if if he loses Stella then his life falls apart. So he's, is it, is he acting out of protection or is he acting out of like a weird moral compass? I, I, you know, it, cause it's sort of like, he has control over Stella. He controls her, right? He can get into a fight with her. He can cry. He can call her back. She'll come back. They can have a kid ups, downs, like, but he, she's not going to lose her. But, but Blanche represents this, this force that could maybe upset his control. No, you're right, because there's this whole thing that's alluded to in, in the in the movie, but we don't get to see it, you know, which is Stanley and Stella falling in love. Like, we know from what we've heard about Blanche that they came from a pretty wealthy family, educated. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, one of the worst insults that you hear Vivian Lee you know, tell Stella about, about Stanley is that he's common. She calls him an animal. Surely you can't have forgotten that much of our upbringing, Stella, that you just oppose as any part of a gentleman in his nature. Oh, you're hating me saying this, aren't you? Oh, I didn't say it all, Blanche. He's like an animal. Has an animal's habits. Has even something subhuman about him. Thousands of years have passed him right by, and there he is, Stanley Kowalski, survivor of the Stone Age, bearing the raw meat home from the kill in the jungle, and you, you here waiting for him. Maybe he'll strike you, or maybe grunt and kiss you. That's if kisses have been discovered yet, his poker night, you call it, this party of apes. Maybe we are a long way from being made in God's image. But Stella, my sister, there's been some progress since then. Such things as art, as poetry, as music. In some kinds of people, some 
tenderer feelings have had some little beginning that we have got to make grow and cling to and hold as our flag in this dark march toward whatever it is we're approaching. Don't, don't hang back with the brutes. And so, and so like the Dubois family is a family that would look down on a Polish immigrant. And they come from riches. And so you do think there had to be this moment where he sees Stella, he wins her over with his magnetism. He probably knows in the back of her brain that according to quote unquote things, you know, she's too good for him. And he's worried that Blanche will be an influence on her, remind her that she's too good for him. You know, Mm. Stella does start ordering him around a little bit, lording it about, you know, go fetch us this when she's around Blanche too much. I, I think he's so worried of being reminded that he's low. Well, he's the power in that relationship. He's the high status character. And then Blanche coming in and immediately, like you said, in that first scene saying, you're overweight. I'm the pretty one. You you left me with all the responsibility. She takes back the power immediately, even though she is low status. She's coming in hollowed out, ghostly. You know, she looks unwell, but she immediately grabs the power there. And what, you know, in, in many respects, Stella is the the most inconsequential character in this, but they're both fighting for who has power over her. They're both abusive to, uh, to Stella. Like, and it's comes out differently. Like, you know, obviously I think Marlon Brand is physically and emotionally abusive to her, but I also feel like Blanche is just manipulating her, trying to get her to come with her, start a new life because she needs a partner in crime. They're, they're both, they're both wrestling for the soul. Yeah, and yet, and yet they're the, instead of the soul, they're fighting over who's in the bathroom too much. Mm-hmm. I mean, my God. I mean, it is definitely the quarantine talking here, but the idea of being stuck in a two-room apartment with one bathroom with your um, your sister and her like hot, hot husband who obviously want to be boning all the time and can't. I mean, that's got to be part of it. They want to be boning all the time. They can't because she's there, and they don't even have a door. They don't even have mm. a door. They only have a curtain. Oh, my God. And and yet, like, Vivian Lee fights with this kind of ninja way. You know, Kim Hunter, if she wants Stanley to do something, she'll just be like, hey, turn that down. And maybe he will or maybe he won't. You know, but just confronting him is the way she handles it. Blanche is like, I'm going to turn on Roomba music. You know, you don't want me to be here. You don't want me to be, like, dominating the scene. I'm just going to fight this way. You know, she has this kind of backwards jujitsu type of, of strategy. Yeah, and I well look, it's a woman who is standing tall to an alpha male. And I think while Stella kind of takes the abuse or accepts the abuse or forgives the abuse, however you want to look at it, um, Blanche is asserting her dominance. And that's probably something that Stanley has never had to deal with with a um with a woman before. And the only way that he can at the end of this play is to physically assert his dominance because he can't win. He can't kind of break her, even though he knows, you know, and, and the ending is interesting because the ending of the play, uh, you know, uh, Stella stays with Stanley and the ending of the, the movie, they, they kind of change that. And, uh, and she leaves Stanley, or it's at least alluded to that she's going to leave Stanley. I thought that was actually an interesting thing, too, because we talk about this, like, what is this play trying to tell us? You know, like, what is what is the end result? And those are two very different endings. You know, um, should Stella be with Stanley? Like, is Blanche right? Do you think Blanche is right to kind of separate the two of them? 
I mean, no. Until he rapes her and then he proves that, yes, he is the monster. Right. But I mean, but well, uh, but it also, but she hits him too. Like he yeah. hits her too. So like, like there is a part where you can, and this is what makes the play, I think, so tricky. You can look at it and be like, they're happy. He, they're an abusive relationship. We know that. We know that these poker nights are going on. We know these fights have happened. We know that. But it's almost like Blanche is trying to get her out for the wrong reasons, using the right reasons as bait, right? And and that's a really tricky thing because she doesn't really care about her sister getting out of this relationship. She only cares about her sister getting out of this relationship so she can then do it to her. So it's, it's I mean, Stella's is really the tragic character here to me. Yeah, I mean, and the play ending is just so gutting. You know, in the way it's supposed to end in the play, uh, Blanche is taken off and Poker Night is still going on and Stella sits in Stanley's lap. You know, she's sort of sobbing and crying and he's consoling her, but really the last shot is he just has his hand on her breasts. Well, like, and... Oh. And by the way, the only reason why the, the play and the movie changed was because of the Hollywood uh, moral code, right? They didn't want, they didn't want a film to show that, uh, that the, that the rapist wasn't punished. Right. And, and that's an interesting thing because it does change the dynamic of the whole play. There's something I think so gutting that, that ending you just talked about it. it it's much more of a Tennessee Williams ending. Whereas this kind of, you, you leave triumphant in the movie or slightly triumphant. Slightly triumphant. Like it's so sad that Blanche has decided just to step into fantasy permanently, you know, to just mm. agree to go away with this man, even though she knows she's being lied to and just make it happen. And and yet I love that moment when it's the other guys more than anything, when the other guys look at Stanley and they see what he's done. It's like Blanche has, he's forced clarity upon Blanche just in that he's sending her away, that she's finally, that he's won, she's going to the mental hospital. But he's seen too. You know, they see him differently. He's been like the popular guy. You get the sense his friends have always liked him, that he's been like, yeah. you know, the fun rogue. And the way they just look at him, the way Carl Malden looks at him, you know, he's he'll never be back. You start to see it in the factory, like because he's getting jealous and he this woman is upsetting his power balance. And I think, you know, there's so many great conversations to have about a power and and when you feel threatened and you know you could talk about how we see that a lot right now in politics you can see that so much you know when when someone is the way that we threaten people and then you know how this is a this is a struggle that i think is getting more and more amplified um throughout everything that we deal with in in our lives you know it is like how dare you offend me that's not the persona that i'm putting out follow me don't listen to anybody else um you know, but I think I want to just go backwards for a second and talk about Blanche and how she even got here because Blanche isn't a duplicitous person, right? Like she became this to survive. And I, in Stanley, it's a little bit more questionable. Stanley may always have been like this, but when you go back to her backstory that gets kind of unraveled throughout the play, wow. I mean, it, it kind of keeps on twisting you and twisting you and twisting you. When you first kind of hear that her husband committed suicide, you see how much of a how much of a weight she's carrying. This is the albatross around her neck. I mean, she is she is uh, completely. I think the beginning of the end was that. Yeah, and and I don't know exactly how I feel about the florid touches of us hearing the gunshot over and over again and stuff. Mm. You know about the movie making us be in her head, 
it's weird. I want to be able to just completely go into the fantasy. Maybe it's just because Tennessee Williams has been done and done and done and parodied so many times. I want to hear like the gunshots and the echoes that signify this memory and this madness that she's got the, the polka music in the background. I don't, I wish I didn't roll my eyes as much as I do. Did that happen to you? You know, I kind of accepted it. This movie does have, um, a magical realism, if that's a good term. I, I don't know. Like, there's some heightened elements to it that make it feel uh, like it doesn't exist in this world. And especially the way the end goes down and when you're hearing the echoes that Blanche is hearing. And I think they do a really good job. And again, this is Kazan bridging you know, stage and film by just giving us a little couple of moments in her head. I don't mind it. I don't mind. I didn't mind it. I feel like the whole thing is heightened and i think if you're if you're on board that train it kind of it worked for me at least film bottles unless the paper lantern you want to take with you you want the lantern doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. One. Two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Did you know that a couple years ago, Gillian Anderson, the actress, did a short film called The Departure that is about the last days of Blanche Dubois in her hometown? No. Yeah. A lot of it is online. Here. We can what here here's a scene. This is Blanche Dubois at the Flamingo, and the local cop has come to tell her that he knows all about herself and the kid. Superintendent Graves. Graves. I've known a few. He's uh, had a call from the mother of one of your pupils. Seventeen-year-old boy. I know many such individuals. <laughs> Stop it, Blanche. I have no idea. The superintendent knows you. You've had these. But you're no stranger to the problem. Oh, please. Is that not just the awfulest? They're saying you're unfit, Blanche, for your position. Morally unfit. How perfectly absurd. I don't think so. The boy will testify. I love that. By the way, also just talking about an issue that feels so relatively new but this movie in this play is so old like this idea of a, a teacher and a student and scandalous nature of that um i i love that that she did a prequel and i love i don't know if you ever saw the sequel where she becomes a um an alien investigator 
<laughs> really good. It was really different. Very, very wow. different stuff. Um, yeah. But, you know, we don't know this backstory when you have scenes like the one where the newspaper collector shows up at their, at her house. You know, the teenager who she winds up kissing. And that scene is charged with so much uh, uncanny electricity. I mean, I mean, when you don't know that she has been accused of of abusing her young students, you know, it seems like a, such a surreal scene. You know, here comes a young man who's just like more beautiful and young and she's drawn to him and she won't let him go. And it's creepy, but you don't know the whole story. I mean, let's listen to a little bit of that. And this scene was so hot at the time that they cut off the phrase on the mouth. They thought that was too much. Young. 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 Did anyone ever tell you you looked like a young prince out of the Arabian Nights? You do, honey lamb. Come here. Come on over here like a torch. I want to kiss you just once. Softly and sweetly on your mouth. Okay, like I is Blanche a child molester or is Blanche a person who misses her young husband that she fell in love with when he was 17? Is it about the husband? Is it about like what is happening here? Or is she just like an attack animal like Stanley Kowalski? Is she just attacking prey? Like, you know, she finds somebody weaker, manipulates them. Now, I don't see the upside of manipulating a 17-year-old boy. Like that only seems like a downside where I see the upside of manipulating Carl Malden's character. I see the upside of her trying to get her sister out, but I don't understand that. Maybe you're right. Maybe that 17-year-old boy was someone that wouldn't question her, that she could maybe go back to her youth in. I mean, it depends on how mentally unwell she is. I mean, at that point, is she really faded? Is she right. even, you know, I don't know. And I think she, for that breakdown at the end to occur, she's got to be close. She's got to be close to, because that breakdown is, she's she's on the precipice, at least in this play, or at least the film version of this. Um, so I think that that breakdown is more believable. So maybe she's just, that's a fantasy that she even maybe thought he was him. I didn't think about that. I think you're exactly right to zero in on the power she has. You know, somebody like Stanley thinks he's too smart to like fall for her flirtations, unlike his buddy Mitch. And this teenager is just, he has never seen a human being like this. She asks him to light her cigarette and he says, thank you. He thanks her for lighting her own cigarette. I mean, mm. that is the spell she puts on this guy. She's like, it's like he just stepped into another world. And let's just go back to her husband. We talked about her husband. In the movie, it's a little more vague. Uh, but her husband did kill himself because he was gay. And in the, in the film, she said that she kind of made fun of him for being too sensitive. Do you think that she also made fun of him for being gay? Like she basically bullied him. And that's why he killed himself. You know, I like I don't I'm not I haven't read the text, so I didn't know if that was more implicitly uh, if that was more explicitly kind of mentioned. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, what she tells what she tells Mitch in the play is that she came into a room that she thought was empty, but it wasn't empty and that there are two people in it and that one of them was the boy she married and the other one was an older man that she thought was his friend. Mm -hmm. And so there's definitely a shock in a in a revulsion in her voice at that moment. You know, it's interesting. The Hayes Code, they thought the solution was that they would make the other person in the room an older woman 
And so they were trying to convince oh, Elia wow. Kazan to go with making her, her husband Joseph had an affair, which absolutely changes it. You know, then it's oh, like, it's not, it's not as it's interesting not even, at all. I mean, it, it, to me, it's like the, and I guess we weren't, I, I don't think we were as aware. I, I'm just going to say culturally aware, maybe personally people were, but the idea that she would be berating this person as if like he could do anything about it. Like, you know, it's, and, and I, and I think that idea is so, you just feel for this husband that we never meet, like just being humiliated, you know, it wasn't that he was cheating, but that he wasn't a man. He wasn't, he didn't, you know, like, and, but it seems like that caught up to her too. Like, it seems like she realized that that was wrong. Like it, it, the same way that like Stanley is outside, you know, pleading for Stella to come back. He realizes what he did was wrong, but you know, Stella didn't kill herself. Whereas Stanley might become a Blanche if Stella did kill her. You know what I'm saying? Like there's something interesting there because they're both abusers. It, this is the battle of the two Stanleys. Just one wears, uh, you know, more uh, diaphanous clothing. <laughs> well, they're both pretty see-through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you think about all of the cuts that the Hayes Code, especially Joseph Breen, who is in charge of it at the moment, wanted to do to Street Crane of Desire, it feels like they didn't understand this story at all. I mean, a lot of Elia Kazan's letters and Tennessee Williams' letters are still around, so you can read them, and they are just outraged. I mean, the Hayes Code wanted to cut the rape scene. And they were like, what? You can't do that. They wanted to cut out the entire idea that Vivian Lee's uh, Blanche had slept around, which was insane. Kazan wrote this letter. He was like, for the life of me, I do not see what can be done about Blanche's promiscuity. It is the story of the play. And for Christ's sake, she pays and pays and pays. What more do they want? And then she, and then he added, you know, tell Mr. Bean that Christ didn't condemn the whore, you know, or move away from her. He said, let him throw the, throw the first stone. And he just was furious. He was like, he wrote at the end, you know, I don't think the code can be applied mechanically or without some imagination to a staged masterpiece that has won every prize in the theater world. I almost wonder if that defensiveness is why this play opens up with a card saying it won the Pulitzer. Like you're about to see some shit go down. It won the Pulitzer. It, it, it feels, didn't, wasn't that such a strange choice? We have not seen that in these, you know, adapted from a true thing. So we'll see it in the trailer that they'll yeah. open with, like, you're a stage-winning thing. But to start the movie like that? Yeah, I, you know, I can't imagine this going down smoothly at the time. You know, especially when we're talking about something like African Queen coming out the same year. African Queen, we already watched it on the show. And it's so... Um, Tame, And obviously that's more of a comedy, but it's playing with, you know, these kind of characters. But when you put that film up with this, you're like, what? I mean, it seems so progressive. You know, this movie is dealing with very heavy things. And as far as I'm concerned, at looking at the, 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 the depth of this list, it's one of the deepest things that we have done as far as like moral ambiguity, right? There, you know, we've talked a lot about moral ambiguity in war but here in interpersonal relationships, I, I don't know. I, I, I can't, none, no other movie that we've watched really comes to mind that is this kind of meaty to be like, well, what about this character? And maybe that character isn't so bad. And maybe this is, you know, like, there's a lot here. Uh, I can't imagine that you can't have, you have to slow, this, slow walk this in. The benefit is that it's a, a renowned play. If this has came out cold, I, I, people's minds must have been blown, would be blown. Yeah. I mean, isn't it fascinating that to have audiences think about their own behavior and their own lines and codes about morality, you have to take a story so big. It is almost like war. 
You know, are you willing to kill a person on the battlefield? Who are you in war? Who are you if you're a prisoner of war? Those heightened stakes are happening here. You know, most of us aren't going to worry about, you know, molesting young boys or, you know, being raped by your brother-in-law. You know, these are not common day occurrences, although they do occur. God, oh, oh, oh. But the core of that idea, you know, you know, you take this big thing and then you find your own humanity in it because you've made this epic, larger than life kind of story. It, it makes me think about why I love Charlie Kaufman films. You know, they 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 tell the worst parts of ourselves in ways we can relate to. You know, yeah, but absolutely. by blowing them all out of proportion. Yeah, I mean, these dramatic, big moments are so important, and this play ends on a pivotal scene, which is also impossible to get through the Hayes Code, which is the rape. We've talked about this rape uh, a few times, but I'd love to kind of get your your uh, opinion on it because it is less than how the play portrayed it, but it definitely allows you to understand what you're seeing. But the Hayes Code, they did not want this here. And Ilya Kazan basically is like the rape of Blanche by Stanley is pivotal. It's an integral truth in the play, without which the play loses its meaning, which is the ravishment of the tender, the sensitive, the delicate by the savage and brutal forces of modern society. It is a poetic plea for comprehension. Now, when I read that, I was like, huh, I don't see it exactly like that. I don't know. That, that, like, that to me puts it in a whole different perspective. Like, it seems to me like that's more akin to what Blanche did to the 17 year old child, right? Like she, like she, she, you know, ravished this tender, sensitive, delicate, or, you know, whatever, this young boy who didn't really understand what was going on, you know, but here I feel like it's much more of a power. It's like, I can't control you. I can't stop you. So the only thing I can do is literally like control you. I mean, this is, you know, I mean, you know, it's a very like, obviously a, a big conversation about rape, but it's a, but it's like there's something about it. I like I don't want to say I don't think that she is this innocent. I all I think it's actually more interesting that she isn't that innocent. Like I don't think that she is, uh, you know, tender and sensitive and delicate. I think that it's more speaking of like this uh, part of like why I think abuse happens. It's like you're th- he's being threatened by her. It's like you know to a certain degree you. I mean, I, does that feel right or I don't know? I mean, it, I, I know I'm opening up a big Pandora's box here, but. Yeah, I mean, that language sounds like the way Blanche would describe it herself, you know, making right. herself always like this sensitive victim at the center of things. That's how she would say it if she was trying to convince Stella that it happened, which doesn't work. Stella doesn't believe it, which is another wrenching thing that. But Stella has a newborn. Stella's like, I just literally gave birth. I just literally yeah. gave birth. What do you want me to do? Like, I can't leave the man who's supporting me. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, it's strange. Like the way this scene plays out, it almost feels like the next step of him just being mad at all the insults, right? You, like mm. he has that that speech where he's just furious that she uh, has been calling him a Polak the whole time. And he's like, I'm 100% American. And he's offended and he gets angry and he smashes the table. And here, I don't know, the way this scene plays out is strange because it starts by her being like, can you please move so I can get by? Which is one of those endless jockeying for power things that they do the whole mm-hmm. time. You know, she tells men in the table, you know, don't stand up for me. Oh, you know, and and Stanley is like, no, really don't stand up. You know, they're always fighting over who stands where and who moves and does, does what. But here he seems so offended by the idea that she is 
accusing him of wanting to rape her that he has mm. to rape her to prove that he wasn't the person who was going to rape her or like or if you think I'm going to do it's that logic that we keep hearing if you keep calling me a Nazi I'm just going to be a Nazi right right yeah yeah it, it's like you've you've made me this way like I'm only doing this because you force my like yeah it's it's a it's bizarre logic um and I mean it also I think speaks to Stanley's character too like he can't he can't get one over on her. He can't like, the only way he can do it is by physically, he's much, I mean, and I think the way that you're talking about him always being wet, having his shirt off, seeing his body, seeing how buff he is. Like if she's a shell, he is a packed sausage. Like, you know, like he is like, you know, he is fully there and there's no, there's no defense for her, you know? Um, Yeah. It's almost elemental, right? Like he's heavy and wet and she's, air and light yeah. floating through. And gosh, I mean, the, one of her last lines is, you know, don't, please don't get up. I'm only passing through. It's like her life is just this ghost, like vaporous thing, you know, from the past, you know, this, that you can't even hold on to. It, I mean, it almost feels like she's representing very much the death of the South, you know, mm-hmm. of this idea of gentility. Like it was dying and then gone with the wind kind of tried to make it back for better and a lot of worse, a lot of worse. But it's still dying, you know, and here, you know, when she talks about watching, watching it die, you know, she gives that speech, you know, that she's lived in a house of death. I lived in a house where dying old women remember their dead men, crumble and fade, regrets, recriminations. If you'd done this, it wouldn't have cost me that. Legacies and other things such as blood-stained pillow slips. I used to sit here. She used to sit there, and death was as close as you are. Death. The opposite is desire. So how could you wonder? How could you possibly wonder? Not far from Belle Reve, before we had lost Belle Reve, was a camp where they trained young soldiers. On Saturday nights, they would go in town to get drunk. And on the way back, they would stagger onto my lawn and call, Blanche, Blanche. And she's the last of her kind, except for her sister Stella. And she's already kind of said, you know, well, I guess Stella's mixing DNA with these stronger people. You know, Stella survives because she's mixing DNA with this Polish person. Very yeah. weird in eugenesis, but it is this, this death of a way of being. Well, and I, and I think after the rape, that's it. She's done. Like, I mean, she's not dead, but she is checked out of this reality. She is not here. No one should stand up for her because she's no longer a person. And, you know, so maybe in that sense, too, it's like it is this ravishment, this, this kind of, uh, you know, once it comes to force, then that then you have. You know, it's sort of like the idea, like, she, he eradicates her. Like, he basically, you know, he can't do it verbally. He can't can't figure her out. But if he can forcefully just go over and I mean, this is, oh, boy, it's so much. I'm, like, kind of wrapping my head around this and, <laughs> and talking about it. So, uh, but it's like, but, like, that idea is really, like, really daunting and, and really something that I feel like I see in society all the time. You know, the, the use of force over people that you know don't 
have the same rights as you that don't have the, you know, are not treated the same way. But this, we come back to this all this time, you know, uh, we see it in the news right now, like the use of forces is something to eradicate life. And it's not always, it is rape, but it's also murder. It's also, you know, trailing the wrong person, threatening the wrong people, standing your ground, all these things. Um, you snuff out a life because you are threatened. And that's something that is, I mean, we are living in that right now. Like three cases in the last two weeks, you know, that are national news. It's like, and there will be more if you're listening to this two years from now. It's, you know, it's this idea that, you know, when you are threatened, you use ultimate power and you destroy somebody. And that is, maybe that's, I mean, that's why I, I've just never seen it kind of articulated as well as this, you know. No, that's such an interesting parallel because you're right. Like Stanley would frame this as I am standing my ground. She -hmm. came into my house. She, you know, is drinking my liquor. She is using my bathroom. She's taking my wife away from me. I hear her telling my wife I'm not good enough for her. I am standing my ground against this person. She's threatening me. I feel threatened by her. So the only way I can defeat her is through force, power. Um, And that's, you know, and we live in a country that, uh, you know, in a world that uh, I think often sees that. Uh, Wow. I'm like, uh, yeah, this has now even gotten deeper for me. And maybe I'm reading into it too much, but that's where where I'm at. So, Amy, I actually, you know, it's a good place to kind of bring in a Tennessee Williams expert uh, right now to kind of talk to us a little bit more about, you know, what is behind Tennessee Williams. This is actually an interesting guest. He um, is comes out of the impro theater and he does um, an improvised Tennessee Williams play. And this is not like what you would see on Whose Line Is Anyway. Um, it's much more rich and truthful to Tennessee Williams. So please welcome uh, Brian Loman. All right, so tell me a little bit about your theater company. Uh, you're improvising in the style of uh, famous playwrights. And just tell me a little bit more about that. I work with a company called Impro Theater, and we've been improvising full-length plays in the style of Tennessee Williams since about 2003. And Williams is one of the playwrights slash filmmakers that we do these improvised pastiches or homages to. Uh, we also do Shakespeare, Dickens, um, Twilight Zone, film noir, uh, Jane Austen. There's a, a lot of different styles that we do, but Williams has been a consistent crowd pleaser for us since we started doing it, and we all continue to love it. Yeah, what do you think it is about Tennessee Williams' style that is so interesting to an audience? Because it, he really is one of those, you know, big... It's, it's a genre. Like, you, can, you know exactly what you're talking about when you're talking about Tennessee Williams. What do you think pulls people in? I think it's the characters and the dynamic between the characters. So we're excited when an outsider arrives from somewhere else, the way that Blanche arrives into New Orleans, appearing out of the mist with her suitcase. We know that she's a fish out of water and something's going to happen when her particular chemistry butts up against Stanley Kowalski's. And he uses that... Um, dramatic tension in a number of different plays, the way that Reverend Shannon is an outsider in Night of the Iguana. We're interested in these different types of people, the, the physical meets the spiritual, and people who live with a large appetite for different things, but what they are hungry for may not be the same things. And how do they coexist in the world? I love that idea. And I feel like to improvise in the style of Tennessee Williams, you really have to get 
familiar with it. You can't just be like, oh, I saw it once or I, I get the gist. Like, how did you kind of immerse yourself enough to feel like you, you can, you know, get his style and his voice and, and the characters? Like, what did you do? It's kind of like a grad school class in Tennessee Williams, which never ends. So we keep reading the plays and looking at the short stories and reading the poems. Um, there's one called Cried the Fox, which uh, ties right into that idea of that person who's trying to escape somewhere or is on the run, which Williams himself did a lot in his life. When the pressure came down, he would pack a bag and split and then his agent had to try and track him down. The director he was working with had to try and track oh, him down. Wow. He understood what it was like to be a fugitive. Can I read just the first four lines of Cried the Fox? Oh my gosh, I would love it. And I think you'll see how it connects to Blanche. I run, cried the fox, in circles, narrower, narrower still, across the desperate hollow, skirting the frantic hill. Oh, I love that. I, I really, I, You know, I didn't know about this poetry. I, I, You know, he's such an interesting figure because I think most people really only think about streetcar. And I wanted to get mm -hmm. your take on that. Like, is that a fair, is that fair? Because, you know, in your opinion, like what's your favorite Tennessee Williams, you know, piece of work? I love Night of the Iguana. And I think yeah. it's a terrific film too. Uh, but the high stakes at the beginning, you know, Blanche gets off with her suitcase and is able to sit down and, have a lemon Coke with chipped ice. Reverend Shannon is like clawing his way up this jungle hill with a busload full of Southern Baptist women screaming at him to come back <laughs> because they want to go home. And he's just deflowered a 16 year old girl who's on the tour as well. So it starts there. Yeah. <laughs> it just yeah. Even more and more crazy. I mean, there, there are German tourists running around with inflatable pool animals marching through this hotel. It, he's not a realistic playwright. And I think that's one of the things that people overlook. They think of him as being kind of in the uh, American realism tradition of Kazan and Marlon Brando, but he is firmly planted in the tradition of being uh, an American poetic non-realist. There is so much richness to his writing, and he explores this idea of what what happens to fragile characters when they come up against bullies who want to control them and ultimately destroy them the way that Stanley does that to Blanche. And I mean, the paper lantern is such a great symbol of beauty getting just crushed in the uh, in the rush to dominate. I think the reason why Tennessee Williams kind of stays so relevant is because you know, the idea of a bully or someone that is having power over you is something that's not going away. I'd argue now, you know, we're in a, a time where our politics is fueled by bullies. Our internet relationships are fueled by bullies. Like we are, you know, regardless of the interpersonal relationships that that's never stopped, but bullying culture, I think has become a little bit more prevalent. It's part of human nature, unfortunately. And you're right with there being more and more outlets for it. They're this whole pack mentality of, of seizing on a vulnerability and then using that to decimate somebody, uh, whether those are internet trolls or whether that's in the political arena, it's acceptable in a way that hasn't been for a long time now. And it's, it's really disturbing. Williams is a good person to look to for that. Cause I think he felt like an outsider so much of his life for being gay and not really being able to come out early in his career and 
writing these plays about these um, characters on the fringes that aren't really understood and uh, don't really have room made for them in the culture. When I was doing short form improv, you would do these genre things and you're hitting the very base level of what all these genres are, you know, whether it's mammoth and you're just saying fuck a lot or, you know, like you're hitting this, this moment of recognition, but to improvise a unique, fully realized piece and to be committed into this world, what are some other structural tropes that you kind of find in Tennessee Williams writing, you know, uh, that, that you use to kind of help guide you as you're, you know, improvising something, you know, that is more full length on the stage? Um, one of the things I did early on, because I've been the director of record for a while now, uh, over 10 years, uh, I created a couple of mnemonics. Um, mm-hmm. One is crisis. So cruelty, reminiscence, innocent outsider, a seduction, an event, and a secret. Oh, I love this. Having those things floating around out there. And then um, the other one that uh, I did for second acts, because the second acts often have an event of some kind in them. There's Big Daddy's birthday party. There's the poker game. Maybe there'll be a big dinner, like uh, the way that Amanda Wingfield is planning that big dinner in the glass menagerie. And if you look at this mnemonic of uh, ache, you get uh, an accusation, the way that Stanley accuses Blanche. Uh, you get a confession. Blanche has a couple of those in streetcars. She confesses about Belle Reeve. She confesses about the death of Alan and, and her cruelty. Um, hope. One of the things that makes Williams watchable is that you're still rooting for them and you're still hoping that these characters will somehow make it through this thing. And then event, as I mentioned. So that would be ache as my second mnemonic. Oh, I love this. I, you know, I know it's kind of taboo to a certain extent, to talk about, you know, an improvised scene, because it's sort of like there's a moment where you feel like you were there and and kind of hearing somebody talk about a great improvised scene is like listening to somebody's dream. But this, what you've done is created something really fantastic. I think that's really, you know, uh, has a lot more weight. Is there a Tennessee Williams play that you created that you look back on and you go like, you know, that, that one actually, like, I'm the most proud of that. That just, you know, like those... Do you, do you have one that kind of jumps out at you that you remember? We did one at the Broad stage in 2018 uh, that was set in a Hawaiian resort with an orchestra conductor and his best friend, who's a music critic. He's now at the end of his rope. He's in this resort with his friend, and uh, he and his wife are on the verge of their relationship completely falling apart because the secret, back to secret, that's come out is that um, he's never really thought that she had the talent to perform at the level that he works at. Mm. Um, so their, their marriage is in, in a crisis. What makes the whole thing kind of blow way out of control is uh, these two church ladies show up on this tour who are really grifters and they're trying to get free hotel rooms and they're claiming to be able to perform uh, religious miracles. They both claim (laughs) to have seen stigmata and uh, they're, they're really interested mostly in having a great time and drinking tequila and partying with uh, this character named boy, Tommy, who 
they convinced to get naked and dance around for him at the swimming pool. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, there, there's that wildness that goes with it and unpredictability that made it really good. But some of it, uh, you know, from being a performer, juicy characters, just really fun characters to play. And um, Edie Patterson, who you might know from um, Vice Principals and Righteous Gemstones and uh, Carrie Coleman play the two Bible ladies. And they are just hilarious. I love that. And I love you can really see in that feels, you know, uh, very much so like a Tennessee Williams a piece. We spent a lot of time talking about Streetcar, and I want to know what's what's fascinating about Streetcar to you? One of the things I love about it is how close it gets to working out. Uh, doesn't Blanche have a line, something like, sometimes there's God so quickly when yes. Mitch Mitch is there with her and she's, oh, this is going to work. I met a guy. He's never going to learn about my past. I'm going to get a fresh start. It's going to be okay. And then Stanley and his predatory bully nature pulls it all apart. But those moments of hope, that awkward dance between Mitch and Blanche is so beautiful. And the the stuff with the lighter on the doorstep. And and the, the other thing that I love is people's, people's flaws, you know, right. Stella keeps going back to abusive Stanley and you just kind of go, Ugh, okay, well, I guess they're happy, but Jesus, what a price to pay. There's a realism to it. I think, you know, a lot of the times I experience the most anxiety retroactively, like what if this happened instead of that? And you get a glimpse of that moment. And I think this play and, and film, you know, you like you said, you see the crossroads and they miss it. Like they could have gotten off this ride. And I think there's something vicarious or I don't know if it's schadenfreude to be like, oh, you're getting to watch other people, you know, like, oh no, they didn't get out of it. What you know, and it there's there it's like a horror film. Like you are living in this moment of 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 watching the downfall or or you can you can a little bit look down on them in a way, but you also support them. I think we see ourselves in these characters to a certain extent. Yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely right. And that moment too, with the young boy at the doorstep mm. where she kisses him yeah, and the what if of what if she just kind of wraps her arms around him and pulls him inside, you know, what, what's going to happen with her as right. a predator in that, that moment, you know, and, and all the trouble that she's been in before that we know about. So yeah, that's a nail biter moment. It's funny that you talk about it as a horror film because I, I just watched um, Todd Browning's Dracula with my five-year-old. Oh wow! Uh, which he, which he loves. He loves vampires. Um, and I was looking at how the the lighting and the kind of gauzy fabric that Blanche is wearing and the way that mirrors work in the film were reminding me of of Dracula in a number of different ways. Yeah, and that that whole gothic element which Blanche brings to the to the movie because she's living in a gothic novel and all. And it's interesting because like, you'd also view Stanley as a vampire, kind of sucking the energy and life out of these people. Like you know, it's like by keeping them under their control. Like that idea of like the traditional vampire has you under a spell, and you know, and, and really is only serving is self serving spell, uh, just uh-huh. to kind of power him. I, I've loved this conversation with you. Uh, you know, the, sh- the show is Tennessee Williams Unscripted. Um, 
And just tell us where we can find you, where people can uh, see the show or, you know, whatever. Like, uh, yeah, how can we find you? Improtheater.com. We're showing shows that we have done in the past on Twitch. So there's an Impro underscore TV channel on Twitch. So we actually showed that William show that I described, and that might be archived there on Twitch. I can send you a link, too, if you want to. Oh, that's great. We can put it up on our show notes. That's perfect. And we'll we'll tweet it out and uh, make sure people can find it. We are live improvising on Twitch Fridays and Saturday nights through June. And we're doing Jane Austen. We just finished our Williams run. But if people want to see the company's work, yeah, that's up and running Friday and Saturday. Well, I love it. And, and I think what, you know, this conversation, what's so kind of fascinating about it is the care and the pride that you take in the work and that you are actually getting something that feels you know, that it is of this, you know, whoever the creator is. Uh, And I think that that's something that's so kind of amazingly special. And when you see great improv like this, you can't, you can't beat it. And it's one of those things uh, where you can't believe it's improvised. And uh, so I, I, I tell everybody, go check out your Twitch. uh, And then hopefully at one point uh, people can see you live and in person again, as we all just wait to find out when that day will be, but thank goodness for, uh, for Twitch and and uh, YouTube Live and all these amazing things, because I think in a weird way people are getting to experiment and see things that they wouldn't normally get to see, or you get to expand your audience too. Uh, it's a really kind of a, a bummer of a time for live performance, but also kind of an amazing time as well. Yeah, it's it's expanded our audience. You know, we we did this show in Oslo about mm-hmm. three years ago, um, and that's one of the shows that's going to be rebroadcast live on the Impro TV Twitch channel. Is the show we did in Oslo. Uh, but uh, we're also teaching too. Our, our school is active, and oh wow, students from New Zealand and Canada and the East Coast that are taking improv Shakespeare with me right now. But um, probably teach Tennessee Williams coming up. That's later on amazing. Oh, I love this. This is great. Well, thank you so much, and uh, pleasure talking to you. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Amy, you actually brought Brian to our attention. I was so bummed that you were not there for that uh, that discussion. Did you see one of these plays? I have. You know, I used to be a theater critic, and I love that. I mean, it, I guess it is sort of what I was talking about. There's been so much Tennessee Williams perfume in the air that it's so fun to go back to the original too, kind of and kind of cut through all the vapor, you know, and see where it comes mm. from, see what inspires it. There's a whole history of melodrama. But, but as we're talking about how how the Tennessee Williams-ness of the world won't die. Have you ever heard about the Tennessee Williams screaming Stella contest? Uh, no, I have not. I mean, I heard all of our people calling in at the top of the episode, which was amazing, but I have not heard uh, that there was another contest. The 32nd annual Tennessee Williams Festival has been going on this weekend in the French Quarter. The event takes place every year to honor the late playwright's birthday. Now, one of Williams's most famous works was A Streetcar Named Desire, and arguably the most popular part of the festival is the Stella Shouting Contest. Take a listen. Stella! Wow. Wow. By the way, I want to talk about that scene. 
it's such an iconic scene, but I, I, I feel like it's just, um, it doesn't feel as iconic in the movie or maybe I just have been used to it. I was like, oh, that's, there it is. There's that scene. It's, <laughs> it's like, uh, but I guess that's maybe how everything feels like the most memeable moment is sort of, you know, manipulated in a way. Um, obviously this has been parodied and people have done versions of this time and time again. Um, you know, this is also, and this is a, a, somebody that we've talked about being a, a controversial person, but ever hear Woody Allen do his impression of Blanche in uh, Sleeper? Miles, Miles, who are you, Miles? I'm Blanche, Blanche Dubois. It means white woods. Oh, he's like a sleepwalker. We can't upset him or it could be fatal. Well, what are we going to do? You read Streetcar Named Desire. Just play along with him. He needs another injection. Physical beauty is passing. A transitory possession. But beauty of the mind and richness of the spirit and tenderness of the heart. And I have all those things. Aren't taken away, but, but grow. Increase with the years. Strange that I should be called a destitute woman when I have all these riches locked in my heart. So there you go with that. <laughs> okay, well, if we're talking about the modern era some more, um, you know I like to torture you by finding songs that reference the movies mm-hmm, that we do. Mm-hmm. It turns out, I mean, I'm going to go on a limb and say that more people, especially more big people, have referenced Streetcar Named Desire than any other movie that we've done on this list. Wow. Besides kind of like Don Corleone and, and Goodfellas. That gets on, right. that's all the time. There's a lot of Scorsese, Goodfellas, blah, 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 Godfather. But, the list of people who have name checked Streetcar Named Desire in their songs is crazy. I pulled like 12 people. I'll just pull a few. Let's start with Kiss. All right, all right. We got some Elton John in the house. Okay, got it. Oh, we got some Jurassic Park. With the adrenaline and passion, the crowd started screaming. Action, satisfaction. New Mark dropped the beat, brought the heat from the fire. We brought the energy and street car named Desire. Oh my God. I could keep going. We got Wu Tang. Play my position in the game of life, standing firm. On foreign land, jump the gun out the frying pan. Into the fire, transform into the ghost rider. A six pack and a street car named Desire. Who got my back in the life? You want me to keep going? I can keep going. Can I keep going? I mean, sure. I'm not minding these, so go ahead. (laughs) Okay, here's some Bob Dylan. That's a mumblier one. There's a Sinead O'Connor, but that one, I don't like that one. Let's not listen to that one. Uh, How about Brian Ferry? You'd be my streetcar named desire. I'm almost done. I feel like I'm wearing your patience. Um, No, no, I'm here. I'm here. How about Panic at the Disco? And it was beautifully depressing Like a streetcar named desire Okay, all right, all right. Uh, oh, you know what? I can't stop. How about Lil Wayne? I mean, of course, we have to, you know, give some props to Sade. City lights, 
I'm kind of fudging that one because she doesn't technically say the word. Yeah, 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 but it's yeah. but it's Sade. I mean, who else has the sexual animal passion worthy of Marlon Brando? Nobody, nobody, nobody. I mean, I will say most of these songs don't seem like they are really talking about the meaning of Streetcar Named Desire, or if so, they've got it all wrong, and maybe they haven't watched the movie. Maybe they haven't listened to this episode yet, which is, of course, they haven't. Yeah. But 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 I did want to play you one last one, and this is a twist on it by uh, the beloved 90s band, best known for Runaway Train, Soul Asylum. Now you no, no, me. no, no. Let's hear Bus Name Desire. Come on. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Uh, well, obviously, it, it is um, the movie or play or piece of work that's launched a thousand mildly okay songs. Um, but, uh, but how was the response to this when this came out? Uh, everybody loved it, and there are no bad reviews. I, of course, I can imagine. And everyone, uh, you know, they got all the Oscars, right? This is, this is like a home run hit. Uh, yeah. Everybody got all the Oscars except Marlon Brando, who lost his Oscar to none other than Humphrey Bogart for The African Queen. Wow, that's fascinating. Those perform that performance. We put them together, and we talked about it earlier. Like it doesn't necessarily, it's you know, it doesn't necessarily go together. But wow, I'm blown away by that. Um, I did want to actually play though, if you don't mind, Carl Malden's Oscar speech, just because mm-hmm. it made me laugh. And the winner by Miss Trevor, it is Carl Malden, his first nomination. And uh, he is accepting it in person. He is taking his time coming down the aisle, and who wouldn't? I haven't been here very long, so... Yes. <laughs> Carl is being moved to the center of the stage. He has not received the Oscar as yet. Because I haven't been here very long, but I uh, can tell you how I feel. <laughs> Great. Thank you. <laughs> and let me just set the stage um, as we're about to hear him play. He's so green because he has just been brought to Hollywood to do this movie. And because of this movie, he's going to go on and he's going to work with, you know, Ilya and Brando again on, on On the Waterfront. But he's so green that he walks up to the Oscar stage and he goes to the wrong microphone. I love it. You know, can I say, Paul, when I was watching this movie, I thought, God, I would give my left arm to see this with John C. Riley as Carl Malden because they look so much alike. And Ooh, then I looked yeah. around. And John C. Riley has been in a streetcar named Desire, but he played Stanley. Oh wow, interesting. You know, I buy that though. I can see him do that. I mean, when I saw True West on on stage, he can do that. You know, he can do that as well. I I really got um, very heavy James Franco vibes from uh, from Marlon Brando in this. Like, I was like, oh, I feel like I see similarities in their acting style here. Uh, you know, I, I, but I was wondering, like, who would be a good modern day Stanley? Uh, that's, a, you know, you know, like off the top of my head, I, I don't know. Like, I, like, did you have anybody in your mind that you could see? I mean, I will say or when Blanche? I re- I will say when I rewatched this movie, I immediately just started texting my friends pictures of Marlon Brando and being like, I'm losing my mind. It's I, I, it's to be reminded again of what how yeah. hot and magnetic he was. And we were I having that same, same conversation. We were like, who who is our Brando? And I remembered, you know, there's this old GQ photo shoot where they dressed Idris Elba up like Marlon Brando in the wild ones. They put him in a striped shirt and they put him in jeans mm. and on a motorcycle with the hat. 
And I've never forgotten that image. That image is seared in my brain because it is such an attractive image. And I feel like we've kind of been missing out on the extreme sexy Idris Elba roles I wish we could have gotten. I, I But I, even so, Marlon Brando is one of a kind, but I would love to see just like, maybe I'm just saying I want to see Idris Elba in a wet t-shirt. Forgive me. Uh, no, I would love to see Idris Elba. I was also thinking that Sharon Stone would be really interesting as Blanche. Oh, yeah. She's such a good actress. She yeah. really is. And you know who else I adore and I don't think gets enough credit is uh, Sienna Miller. Oh, yeah. She's fantastic, too. Um, then are we talking about Ryan Philippi as uh, the new Stanley Kowalski? Who knows? Uh, this has like been a really interesting conversation. And I just before we get into the, the biggest question of the podcast, um, I wanted to see, like, are we always behind the times about what audiences can accept? Right, because this is a pretty heavy play, a uh, pretty heavy piece of work. I keep on calling it a play, it's a movie, um, but yet it was. I like it when you call it a piece of work. It's uh, a real piece of work. <laughs> the real piece of work, but it's like it wins all the Academy Awards. It's a huge critical hit, um, and at the time, it pushes so many boundaries. But yet, we always go back to like comfort food. Are we like? I'm just interested. Like, I, I when I hear that this movie was so well received. It's like, are were we ready? For, we were ready for this back then. We were ready for this, so, you know, but we always, we kind of always sneak back in. Like, oh, I don't know. Can people see that? Can people see that? Uh, and I think the resounding answer is a lot of the times, yes, they want, they want things to be more challenging. And I think this is that beautiful mix of challenging and entertaining, uh, which is always, you know, a tricky thing not to feel like it's preachy, but you, you've definitely watched something that's incredibly compelling without, it feeling like you've been lectured at, you know, then Amy, it opens me up to my final, well, my final of two questions. Um, is there Simpsons? And you don't even to say yes, just play the goddamn clip. We know there's a Simpsons. Oh, well, yes, but there's not even like a Simpsons clip. There's the Simpsons episode. One of the most famous best yes, Simpsons yes. episodes of ever you know, a streetcar named Marge. And this is the episode where Marge is, realizing she's kind of in a Stella-ish position in her marriage. She's bored. She wants to do something that makes her feel alive. And so she performs in the musical Oh Streetcar, <laughs> a uh, curious reworking of, of Streetcar Named Desire. And I wanted to play a couple of different clips really fast just from the production within the production. There's This entire episode is amazing. But since I can't play all of that because we'll get sued, I just want to play the Springfield theatrical adaptation of Oh Streetcar since it is the closest to what we're talking about. We're going to hear the intro song. We're going to hear Ned Flanders as Marlon Brando. And we're going to hear the beautiful outro. My name is Blanche Dubois. I thought my life would be a Mardi Gras, a never-ending party. Ha! I'm a faded southern dame. Without a dime I'm collecting for the evening star Come here Stella! Stella! Can't you hear me yell You're putting me through hell Stella! I have always depended on the kindness of strangers. You can always depend on the kindness of strangers to pluck up your spirit and shield you 
Ah, uh, that is amazing. And I guess the final question is, does this belong on the list? Absolutely. And why is it in the 40s? That's my big question. Absolutely agree with you. This movie belongs on the list. And I think it this should be in the in the 20s. To I agree. me, like, you know, it's 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 such an iconic thing, but it also I like I said, it I think it's one of the most complex pieces that we've done on the show. I agree. I mean, I think this movie is perfect. The only thing that I would change about this movie is we get a shot of Stanley's bed and there's a saxophone by the bed. You know, if this movie just had Marlon Brando playing the saxophone, done. Number uh, two, Number two on the it. list. But now I know, Amy, you might have an issue with the fact that um, we, we talked about this earlier. But as we go, I just want to say, like, uh, you know, obviously uh, Blanche was aged up. Do you think that she should have been not cast in this movie? Oh, wow. Cool. So, I mean, here's the thing. It actually is a movie about a girl who's a little, who's old, you know? Yes. And her, and so it fits. She's supposed to be old and pretty, and she's old and pretty. She's not supposed to be 19. Now, if she's supposed to be a 19-year-old hotshot Scarlett O'Hara, then yes, I would have an issue with it. But it fits the plot, unlike other movies on this list. Point. Taken. Um, all right, let's talk about our movie for next week. <laughs> Amy, next week we actually have a really fun big one. Uh, as our AFI list is, you know, wrapping up, uh, we are getting to some of these bigger ones on the list that people have been asking for. And just so you know, we are going to come back. I know a lot of people have been tweeting, like, what are we going to do when it ends? We got plans. Hang on. We'll talk more about them mm. soon. But uh, I have back. always but- depended on the kindness of podcast listeners. <laughs> Um, oh, by the way, as we say, the kindness of podcast listeners, thank you to Apple Podcasts for um, giving us a nice uh, little feature as part of their movie fanatics section last week. Uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, you know, uh, gave us a little bit of love and we appreciate that so much. Um, but let's talk about next week's episode. Amy, what is it? It is a Blade Runner. Ooh, I'm so excited. I just recently rewatched Blade Runner. Maybe it was before seeing the sequel to Blade Runner. And uh, and again, I felt like I enjoyed it in a different way. And uh, we'll be watching. Which cut do you want to watch? Do we want to oh, tell people? Oh, dear what? God. There's so many of them. Uh, there's so, watch what so you many. got, man. Watch what you yeah. got. <laughs> watch what you got. Like, I, I would just say try to avoid the original cut. Like, let's see if, it get, like, if you can get the director's cut in there. I think that would be uh, the way to go. Well, you know, let's do this for a call-in. We lost Rucker Hauer this year, and he has that beautiful speech. And I think to honor him, I would like to start off our Blade Runner episode by just having everybody, us, the listeners, put that speech back together. So give us a call. Do the Rucker Hauer speech. We're going to do a, a super Hauer, a super Rucker. What would you call it? A Ruckathon? Uh, Yeah, a super Ruck. Oh, yeah, a Rucka Jam? Yeah, Ruck uh. Smash. Uh, we're going to do that. So... Give us your best speech. Um, our phone number is, as always, 747-666-5824. That is 747-666-5824. And make sure that you follow us on Instagram right now. We have a brand new Instagram page. It's uh, <laughs> Unspooled Pod. Unspooled Pod. We are verified. You'll know we have the little check mark next to our name. And we have been kind of trying to have some discussions in the comment section on our Instagram. So uh, jump in there. Every day we're posting one of the classic uh, Kim Troxall 
uh, images that she's created for the show. Uh, so we'll have a little bit of time until we catch up with that. But um, but we are also posting new images and we'll be having conversations there. So visit us there at Unspooled Pod on Instagram. All right, Amy, uh, we'll see you next week for Blade Runner. love a classic chocolate chip cookie. Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.